And I am Andrew Brewer, the host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And today my guest is Antonius Skipper. He's an assistant professor of gerontology at Georgia State University and has had a little stint in Winston-Salem as well, and I met Antonius at a program we did last week in geriatrics, and uh, just was I loved his presentation, so I asked him to be on the podcast, and here you are. So welcome, Antonius. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and your CV is quite impressive, nine pages, so I can't possibly uh, <laughs> go over it um, in the amount of time we have, but if you'll give me kind of the cliff notes of how you got into the field that you're in, and then we'll, we'll unpack a lot of the, the topics that you're you're covering with your research and your teaching and all, and your interests. How's that? That, that works. That works. Um, so, yeah, it's nine pages, and, and it's funny you, you, you say that because that's so short in academia. I'm like, I, I need like 30 more pages in the next year or so. Um, but I, um, I mean, I, I am an assistant professor of gerontology as shared at Georgia State. Um, short stint at in Winston-Salem at Winston-Salem State, where I was an assistant professor of gerontology there for four years. Um, background kind of originates in and around Atlanta. I graduated undergrad from Georgia State with a degree in exercise science. And kind of in between undergrad and graduate school, I just found a passion for aging. Like I, it started off as just a volunteer opportunity. I volunteered at the hospice and I absolutely fell in love with just working with older adults and hearing their stories. Um, so I went back to school, went back to Georgia State, got a master's in gerontology. I would then work for a couple of years before venturing off to Louisiana State University, LSU, uh, where I received my Ph.D. in social work and then accepted my first job, which was at Winston-Salem State in, in their gerontology program. Um, so my research has largely kind of looked at strong African-American families. Um, particularly around health, well-being, coping, and really understanding those factors that contribute to strong African-American families. I've taken a particular interest in exploring religiosity and how religion influences behaviors, uh, particularly for those that identify as highly religious, and how we can kind of foster the conversations around religious salience within sectors that often don't have those conversations. So whether that's healthcare, whether that's social work, or sometimes even gerontology, just recognizing when religion matters, it often matters significantly. And so that's kind of been my research and in, in looking at these kind of dyadic relationships within African-American couples and understanding how working together contributes to health, well-being, particularly around religiosity. Wow, thank you for that. And there's a lot there, and we could, I think, we could talk for days. Um, I'm, I'm already loving this conversation, and uh, you know, one of the titles of one of your papers was "Black Love Matters," and I just love the play on that. That, um, and, and the the stories around uh, the the close family and and how religion and spirituality plays in that. And so I want to start kind of our current status, and we have this notion in pop culture that. The black family is suffering, like the absence of the father. And I know you've done some research on the myth of the missing black father. Can you just, you know, talk about where we are with all that and, and, and where, you know, you know, what pop, pop culture wants to tell us and what. what yes. The, so I'll let you go. <laughs> yes, uh, I think that's that's a great point. And. I got involved in this project. I have to give a nod to Dr. Lauren Marks, who was at LSU at the time, but he does research with strong African-American families. And he got started in it because African-American students mentioned to him that we don't see uh, depictions of ourselves within textbooks. We don't see strong families. Like every time we talk about black families, what we're talking about is divorce. What we're talking about is deficit. We're talking about missing fathers. And, you know, the students were bringing up, well, that's not the case. Like there are families out there that are black and that are strong and that are happy and are married for a very long time. Um, and so one of the things that I've really been intentional about is taking this strength focused perspective in understanding black families. Um, one of the things that that requires is to avoid this comparison, right? Oftentimes we want to compare two 
of something in in racial disparities research that's comparing two races and many times you're going to have black seen and deficit to others but when we take this strength focused perspective we're really looking at the black family and seeking to understand where it is strong um and so not acknowledging all that is wrong but understanding that even with those things that are wrong there are strengths there and those strengths can contribute to resilience they can contribute to coping they can contribute to positive health outcomes um and so often we're given these messages of dad's gone of uh you know um black families aren't doing well of the divorce rate is you know 50 60 percent and and we hear it constantly we see it constantly in pop culture um i remember being at winston-salem state and i would do um I would do an activity with my students and it was it was quite simple in introducing the lecture i would start by asking them to describe black dads in three words i would say in three words describe black dads and they would give me everything that pop culture says um you know daddy's been gone daddy's never there uh um wishes he was present whatever they say you know it it often touched on this deficit lens, this deficit perspective. And then I would get into talking about um, the black family and how we really have to understand the black family within the context of the constraints that impact, particularly black men, whether that's incarceration, whether that's sporadic employment, whatever the case may be. Um, I talk a lot about the role of the uncle that often steps up in black families when the dad may not be present. Um, and so many of the students will say, yeah, you know, I, 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 my uncle was basically my dad or I had a coach who was a football coach that really took on this fathering role. And I really look at him like he's my dad. And so it's really kind of just reshaping many of the things that we've come to believe around the black family to understand that there are these strengths within the black communities and the black families that we can, can can build on and we need to have a lot more conversation around a lot more research around yeah i think that's what i loved about your your presentation uh last week was the strength folks focus perspective. I mean, you're like the black Steven Pinker, you know, you're, <laughs> you, you, let's talk about progress and, and the positive things instead of the cliche that popular culture wants to portray. Yes. And, and I, I love that. And I think that um, it's so nice to hear talk of resilience and coping and leading to positive health outcomes, because a lot of the dialogue I hear is even within well-meaning conversations about social health determinants and, and and disparities and all that is just focusing on the victim narrative and talking about all the negative things and I think that you need to have the positive because if it's like the law of attraction if you think about what you don't want that's what you get more of you know instead of thinking about what you do want let's look at like Coleman Hughes I don't know if you know Coleman Hughes but he's always talking about let's not compare apples to oranges let's not talk about the disparities between white and black let's talk about the gains that blacks have made in say cardiology you know like the less heart disease over the last 25 years and things like that and tremendous gains and not to say that there's not progress to be made and, and equity and equality and all that but there are great gains and, and it should be celebrated and it's just such a a lack of people celebrating the, the, the positive stories and i'm so glad that you're, you're a voice among those yes that are doing that i'm trying to find a question here i mean i think um in in the the uh, aging which is i'm fascinated how exercise science because i'm kind of on this path <laughs> myself is that you know i, I recently got certified in, as a group x fitness instructor and you know, I'm seeing what my life looks like when I'm also, uh, you know, older <laughs> and, and plotting a, a healthy lifestyle and actually being able to teach and to share. So I'm, I'm, I love that you went from exercise science into geronto gerontology and aging because all that's around a healthy lifestyle yes. and, and the maximum quality of life. And if you can kind of bring together that with the stories and the wisdom that you gain from talking to successful, I would say, call it successful, older couples that have made it work and have, have been the patriarch and matriarchs of families that, that kept it together. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it was a unique path. So I, I started off uh, wanting to go into 
exercise science because I wanted to be a physical therapist. So that was the goal. I, I was starting off as a physical therapist. And um, funny story, I guess it was probably around my, my junior year of college, I landed a sales job making way more money than any 20 year old should make right <laughs> so here i am here i am making great money and i'm faced with the option of applying to physical therapy school and it's like wow do i really want to apply and, and take a 30 40 50 pay cut um and so way more i completely blew that money like I, you can't give that kind of money to a 20 year old let me tell you but lesson learned um and so i'm working this great job and and i I'm making great money, but I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. Like, I, I just didn't really enjoy it. Um, and so I'm searching for this kind of passion. And within that, I said, you know what, I'm going to just start volunteering with the hospice just to have something to do. The only thing I knew about the hospice was that my grandmother had died in hospice. I didn't really know much about it. Um, and a lot of times within the black community, it's seen as the place where you go to die. And so we see that hospice use is very low among African-Americans in comparison to other groups. Um, so I just started volunteering with the hospice and man, I absolutely fell in love with it. Just sitting with people, the conversations that we would have, the things that they would say, um, the end of life experiences, they may be like, hey, Skip, you, you see that light over there? And they'd be like, nah, I don't see a light, but uh, it, it's comforting to know that you see a light so I can know what to look for when I'm there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just really enjoyed that. And, and it really brought about this passion for aging and working with older adults. So for a while, I combined them and I did a bit of falls research, um, looking at contributors to falls amongst diverse, among diverse uh, older adults. Um, and then as I ventured on more into my master's program and into my PhD, I really took on this interest of older couples and recognized that nobody's having these conversations. Like even basic measures, one, one basic measure that we see in, in family research is like marital satisfaction. It's like every group out there, we've looked at marital satisfaction. We understand what contributes to being satisfied. We, we know these things. Older African-American couples, they really don't have that like nobody is touching the topic of older african-american couples uh it's in part a factor of the life expectancy oftentimes of the black man which um now after COVID, is about 68 years and so many older african-american men simply aren't seeing older adulthood um also those you know factors that contribute to a lack of stability or, or those things that are real in many in many african-american communities um are contributing to a lack of understanding around those couples but just identifying these couples and finding someone that's been married for 50 60 years and simply asking how'd you do it like the research says that this isn't supposed to be possible because that's what the research is focusing on um but how did you do it and many times the responses are, are so simple but they're so informative and these are things that we can take back to other younger African-American couples and even others to say, hey, you want 60 years in, uh, sir, you have to learn when to stop talking. That, that, you know, this couple told me that you have to learn as a husband when to stop talking. And that's the key. Um, so whatever that key is, um, I think is absolutely fascinating to kind of dive into those things. And there is an upcoming paper that will be released with Family Relations, which I'm excited about, which is about just that advice from strong African-American couples. So couples that have been married for um, several decades. And the question simply was, how did you do it? I think I think that's so important. And I think that uh, those of us who want a healthy relationship, you know, dive into that. But, the, you know, I'm worried about younger generations. There seems to be a tendency to shun marriage and coupling and the nuclear family. And there's also these messages in pop culture of, of empowerment for, you know, nothing yes. wrong with empowerment of women, but this whole queen stereotype, well, I don't need no man and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. And it's, it's in white culture too. It's not, it's not limited. Um, but there's this propagation of demasculizing the man and empowering, you know, lifting up the woman and, also, uh, there seems to be a thread I see of, or I 
sort of feel and read about sometimes is millennials and the younger generations. They don't look to the older generations as wise and with having lessons to teach them. They, they look at it as like, oh, y'all screwed up the planet for us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going to have to fix it. And so we don't need your advice because we don't we don't trust you because you didn't you weren't good stewards of, of our of our world. And you didn't solve the problems that you know, you marched in the streets 40, 50 years ago to solve, we're still having to march in the streets. So what do you got to tell us? So, you know, I love that, you know, you use the, the, the listen to shut up and listen. Cause you know, as we know, listen is, uh, uh, uh you know, also spell silent with the same words and, yeah. and that, that old chestnut, but, uh, you know, what, what are the secrets? What are the secrets that need to be shared? Um, well, there were several that were shared. Of course, religion religion kind of played into uh, the stability of these couples, but things that kind of moved beyond that. Um, another big one that we would almost expect was finances, of course. Every couple has these conversations about finances. Um, what I thought was unique in relation to the couples that I interviewed was that it wasn't about how much money. It was really about how you use your money and the agreement on how you used your money. And so that really seemed to be the foundation of it. There were several of the, the couples that shared that there's one person that handles the finances. Um, I give my check to, you know, my wife or I give my check to my husband and they take care of everything. Um, But there seemed to be kind of this agreement around that. And just to test the theory, I would ask my students, like, what what do you all think about that? And it was like, no, no, we're not, we're not mixing finances. We're not mixing bank accounts. And I was like, you know, complete trust, right? Yes. Complete trust. Complete trust to say, Hey, here's my check, you know, take care of everything that you need to take care of on the financial front. I'll, I'll do what it is I'm good at. Um, and so that was a part of it and, and kind of adopting whatever it is that you're good at. If finances is what you're good at, that's what we trust you to do. If it's something else, childcare that you're good at, that's what we trust you to do. Um, another thing that really emerged from the data was egalitarianism, this idea of of just working together to take on multiple roles and having this role fluidity. And so oftentimes there may be a partner that loses their job and someone else has to pick up the slack. Or um, there may be a husband in the household that has to take on the child care responsibilities, the cooking responsibilities. And so there was is this egalitarianism and this ability to be fluid in the role and not stuck in, in kind of this traditional sense of what one partner is supposed to do versus what another is supposed to do. Um, and so I thought that that was, was really interesting. And I think, you know, as you share, there's so much wisdom in these interviews. I mean, I I have probably 1200 pages of data and these are just interviews that you can flip through and read. Um, And these are just couples that are talking about how they have achieved a a strong marriage as an African-American couple. And we have to break that generational gap that we're seeing. Um, I, I recently did a project called Boomer Remover, which was looking at ageism during COVID-19. And I just pulled, I pulled a lot of data from Twitter to say, hey, you know, t- Twitter is is millennial heavy. So let's see what Twitter is saying about older people in relation to COVID-19. And that generational gap is very real. Like those stereotypes that you bring up, you know, well, you ruined the planet, those types of things, like they're hindering the conversation and they're hindering a lot of the wisdom that these older adults have to share with their younger counterparts. Yeah, Twitter to me is like toxicity times a hundred. <laughs> any, any given negative attribute of any any given subject. So, I, I I don't like when things from Twitter make their jump out into the real world because because there needs to be some sort of filter to 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 uh, dilute the 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 anger behind it let's just say. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I love that you know you you mentioned and I want to go way more into this about religion and stability but um you know the finance thing i i've been uh, i'm over two on the marriage thing too and I, I know that finances and fighting about money led to a lot of dissension and 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 distrust and and um discord in the relationship so that that's a huge one is just figure out who's got the strengths there and then have that ultimate trust and agree yes. not to not to fight about it 
and <laughs> yes um and then the egalitarianism I, I i love that too where you know maybe the man does the cooking and the clean you know manages so it's not gender stereotypes it's shared roles and the willingness to to be partners in, in that so those those are huge things that i think that um you know especially the the younger generations who claim to be so woke it's like you know the these relationships are important and being you know figuring out what your team is and and when your roles on the team is important and how to share that so thank you for that now back to religion i mean you know that's another trend i've seen that feels disturbing to me that the sort of scoffing at spirituality and religion as like i don't need that you know politics is the new religion or environmentalism is the new religion or social justice is the new religion you know whatever your ideology and and you know the stories the wisdom that you're getting from stories from older couples is also you know relevant to the stories and the archetypes that religion offers you know we have these great important lessons there that we you know it seems like younger generations want want to leave behind for whatever reason do you find that in your research and your discussions with students i mean you're, you're you're in the classroom so i guess you're in it yeah um well we definitely see um kind of this this trending away from religiosity in comparison to i guess we'll call them the olden days um and so we see that as a society we appear to be growing less and less religious but that doesn't mean that you know we're entirely moving away from it um i think young adulthood is an interesting time period where many people that are raised in religiosity tend to move away from it during those younger years and and then they realize as they get older oh shoot i need that foundation i really um, don't see everything <laughs> like i thought i did <laughs> right right um and, and and young adulthood gives this kind of um uh, time for healthy exploration and all of these different things that are are good for development and, and you know understanding identity of course um but there is this kind of move away from from religiosity but we see that when it matters it often matters significantly and i think that's the part that i really um highlight and touch on even in working with with students and those that are going into the field of gerontology or going into the field of social work is that we have to have the conversations because when religion matters it matters significantly um so it can inform you know health decisions it informs health behaviors it informs interventions um often it's one of those things that we don't want to touch we don't want to discuss you know religion and politics those are the two things that you you keep off the table because we don't want to upset anyone um but when we're not having those conversations around religiosity spirituality particularly with older adults and uh, especially with older african americans that identify as the most religious uh racial ethnic group in the u.s many times we're missing you know what could be going on um and so one of my goals is to really move around or move away from this very uh broad conceptualization of religiosity which is just to look at religious service attendance that's how we've done it in research for so very long how often do you go to church yeah. and that's the measure of religion that's a it's not a great measure of religion especially for older adults that become um less involved in organization organizational religiosity but still maintain religion spirituality within the home um and so one of the the things that i'm really moving toward is to understand how religious coping matters how um various aspects of religion matters one of the things that i saw in the with the couples i interviewed was that deferred religious coping was a huge practice when a couple felt that something was beyond their control they in essence gave it to a higher power to say hey you know what this isn't my battle to fight this isn't our battle to fight we're going to give this to a higher power and we're going to trust that it's taken care of now it's a good immediate response because it reduces the stress of dealing with whatever burden people may be facing um there may still be a need to come back around and address whatever that issue is but uh for those that adopted this practice they truly believe that by handing this issue over to a higher power is taken care of it, it's not mine to deal with anymore and so i think that's the 
type of thing that we really have to note and recognize and that religiosity matters and it, it matters significantly. Well, you just define the word faith in that. Yes. And I think faith and healing, and I have a couple of guests on my podcast that we talked a lot about the importance of faith and healing in the, in the healthcare setting too. And, you know, my office is in a, in a medical center. So you, we're in this real interesting place when you walk around. I mean, I'm talking more pre-COVID um, when you could see people's faces and see their expression. And they, and I've said it many times, people are probably tired of hearing me say this about like, you know, you are at, you are amongst people in either their biggest time of need and also their biggest, uh, you know, time of chaos <laughs> and the amount of import, the importance that faith has in that moment. Every, you know, there, where they say there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, you know, people kind of find God in the ER as well. Sometimes <laughs> I think um, one of the things that, you know, I want you to re respond to is, is the role of discipline and sacrifice. Um, is that a theme that you find in the older couples of, I mean, mirroring or marrying religion and just the wisdom that life as a strong couple and, and being resilient and, and all that, you know, how much of that is discipline from religion? How much is that a sacrifice based on old religious stories? Uh, that's a great question. That's a great question. And I, I do think that quite a bit of it comes from just, um, like tradition and, and, and just kind of learning. I think a lot of this traces back to, uh, again, I'll say olden times, whether that is uh, slavery or immediately following slavery and the understanding that, you know, in order for there to be anything, there has to be sacrifice. I remember going into, this is a, a side story, but in every program I went into, I remember telling my wife, hey, I'm going back for a PhD. And she's like, you know, it's a terrible idea. We have kids, we have family, we have a house. Like, what are you thinking? Um, and a model that has stuck with me through everything I've done is temporary sacrifice. I always, all of my friends will tell you when they're going through something, if they come for skip to skip for advice, I say, hey, man, temporary sacrifice. It's all temporary sacrifice. What are you willing to do in this moment to get what it is that you want? in the future. It's all a temporary sacrifice. And so I think that same thing goes along with, with these strong marriages as well. And you have to see it in that way. You know, um, what is it that I'm willing to give up in this moment? What argument am I willing to lose as of right now? And many times when you're in the moment, you're not thinking like that. Um, but those couples that are stable and together for a long time they have an ability to cope that a lot of others don't have i think one of the important things to realize is that none of these couples are dealing with really unique issues like we're all faced with the same issues within our relationships within our marriages so on and so forth one couple is able to get through it and another is not because of the ability to cope the ability to work through these things the ability to sacrifice the ability to compromise um and so i agree that you know that is a huge part of stability um and i also believe that that's something that can be taught from a strength focused perspective uh you know one thing that i i really kind of push home is taking the moment to think about what you're thinking about and, and just giving a brief second before you actually act on anything to say, hey, what is it that I'm thinking about in this moment? Mm -hmm. And that gives you the pause that you need to realize that you can adopt a strength focused perspective in anything that you do. And you may not determine what happens to you, but you determine how you respond to it. Now, can you compare and contrast, you know, younger generations to the older as far as like, um, you know, personal responsibility and their their willingness to sacrifice and invest in the future to to maintain that strength and the the strength focused perspective and and like I guess I guess where I'm going is I, I I have this feeling in the zeitgeist of today's popular culture, especially that um, you know there's such a focus on rights and right and i'm i'm entitled to this and and i can't be dis i can't be any sense of discomfort i will find as as either uh, an assault or trauma or use these big words for you know small <laughs> little you know and, and big feelings for small little things and there seems to be a lack of resiliency and a lack of coping because of this sense of entitlement 
um, and, and I don't know that I'm right about this. It's just a sense that I feel, and I have teenagers who kind of have some of those traits as well. Yeah. But, but like, you know, the older couples, let's say you're dealing with, you know, an 80-year-old couple. I mean, they went through Jim Crow. They went through some <laughs> rights. They went through some really tough times, and yet they made it out um, successfully. And not to say, you know, they didn't struggle and didn't have to go through major hurdles to get where they are, but it seems like a lot of the younger generations are just using that as a as a reason not to accept personal responsibility. Am I way off base there? I don't think you're off base. I think that, uh, but I do think a lot has changed, particularly when we consider um, social media. And I, I often go back to just having instant access to everything, right? Like we, we have too much information and we have so much information that it, it creates this almost group think well if you're angry i'm angry um you know well if okay so this is what we're this is how we're feeling at this time and it creates the, the that, angry mob the angry yes, mob yeah, yeah it, it creates that group think and i think that that's you know in part what we didn't see with older generations and that um, it was easier to kind of exist in these silos and it was easier to, you know, only know what was going on within your home and not know what's going on in all of your neighbor's homes because they just put it on Facebook. Um, but I, I, I in part think that, you know, we're seeing a bit more groupthink with um, younger generations. I don't want to discount that because I think that, you know, the groupthink has led to some positive movements, especially for those things that really uh, have merit in those things that, you know, are, are fights that we need to continue fighting to say, wow, you know, this is right now, this is present news. This is something we would have not known about had it not been for social media or, or camera phones or things like that. And so I think that, you know, some of that can be healthy, but I also believe there is a bit too much information and the younger generations are kind of attaching on to that and adopting, um, this, you know, this, uh, group think um something that i'm working on now with a colleague is really about um recognizing the assumptions that we make before we apply it to something and so uh with what's going on in the current climate a lot of times we are quick to anger about every single thing and as researcher we're researchers we're taught based on theory there are certain assumptions that have to be met in order for something to be deemed theoretically you know possible um and many times we're jumping past those assumptions and going straight to oh this is what's wrong everybody's going to be angry about this in this present time whether that's relationship related or or whatever the case may be um but yeah man just just a lot of information very fast right now yeah i don't think our brains are equipped to deal with the amount that we're thrown at so there's a lot there i want to talk about um the the notion i mean you, you said the the assumptions that are made and, and you know quick to to judge really and that you know the we talk about unconscious and conscious biases and stuff and i just i recently read malcolm gladwell's blink i know it's been around for a while but you know how quickly we make snap decisions based on all this information and this was written before social media really and now we have all this influx um without a lot of times either uh, that we've curated our feed to only give confirmation bias mm -hmm. or that we're just inundated with all this dissonance of, of mixed messages and, and it's just creating our swollen amygdalas and we're getting activated and all we want to do is complain about the world. So there's too much information. And then we have so much comfort. We have a lack of lack, I think, that that gives us the privilege and the and the probably never seen before opportunity to complain about things that were really not issues before <laughs> yeah. and, and, and then we also given the ability to raise up issues that really need to be talked about but perhaps in a way that um gets a little extreme and i guess what i mean like we're talking about racism more than we ever have mm -hmm. however i think probably on the whole in the human condition, there's probably less of it than there's ever been. But the conversation now, you know, that could be my privilege talking too, and I get that. <laughs> but you know, there's there's there seems to be all this talk about it, 
and it's raising the level of awareness, which is good. But now, now we're all looking for it everywhere. Yeah, so it has a has a mixed effect, I think. So, you want to react to that at all? I don't know if I have a question specifically. No, no, I think that's fine. I think um, I I don't I don't necessarily well I wouldn't say that there's less of it because I think that um. One of the things that I came to realize was that in African-American households, racism has always been an issue. Like I remember, you know, being a kid and my mom would talk to me about racism and, and my kids are, are very aware, like as young, you know, four, three, four, five year olds um, to say that, hey, you know, this is out here. This exists. This matters. Like, you know, you recognize it. You have those conversations. And I'm not sure that those same conversations occur in white American households because race doesn't matter as yeah. much good and, point. and good point. yeah and so i think that that's a part of it and and i think that you know it's hard to kind of jump towards racism for everything and see the big issue of of race because it becomes okay well let's fix racism and that's too big of an issue to address <laughs> right. if we can address those things that contribute to microaggressions those things that contribute to racism e even the little bit of corner of work that i'm doing it and trying to have more conversations around strong african-american families to say hey let's let's counter this deficit perspective let's talk about what's working let's talk about what's good within african-american households like that small little corner of work is in part dressing this huge big issue that people are saying, you know, society is racist, let's fix racism. And we have to start with the small things. We have to start with those things that we actually can address and everybody works towards doing, you know, that work. I think that's kind of where where we are currently and, and what we need to address. And, you know, we have a number of things that contribute to racism, whether it's, you know, disparities in incarceration, employment, um, neighborhood differences like we're still dealing with with so much um and a lot of the conversation is jumping there now but i i think we just have to take several small steps to address a very big issue now i appreciate all that and i i've learned something from that too and and you know i love that you know the the strength focused perspective of debunking the myth of the broken family mm -hmm. you know i mean and, and just how important still and how needed the strong families are and and you know can you talk a little bit about some research or, or some uh you know statistics that 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 you know for positive health outcomes and how important you know po you know healthy relationships are yes yeah i think a lot of the benefits that we see tend to be with with children um so one one study that was done, and I believe it was by the CDC a while ago, um, and it talks about this myth of missing black father. Um, and it was a study that was done that recognized that when fathers are involved in the lives of their children, uh, black fathers tend to be more involved than fathers of other racial and ethnic groups. And so it looked at outcomes such as uh, doing homework with your children. Um, uh, doing different activities with your children after school, um, making sure that, you know, the children are fed. Like, so it looked at those types of things. And, and what it found was that uh, African-American fathers are, tend to be very involved in the lives of their children in comparison to others. Um, I think when we start to look at what makes a family is when things get a little complicated, right? Because the myth of the missing black father says that dad is gone. Dad isn't always gone. Dad just isn't always married to mom. That doesn't mean that dad is gone. And so I think we have to you know, do a better job of understanding the involvement of fathers that aren't necessarily married to the mothers of, uh, of their children um, and recognizing that those fathers are still oftentimes very involved in the lives of their children. They're still respected by their children. And, and that in part contributes to, you know, debunking this myth of, a missing black father. Mm -hmm. Now, since you mentioned kids, I mean, how how influential and or uh, and I won't say well, I'll go ahead and say it detrimental. Perhaps um, is pop culture and, and mainly music. I mean, my kids listen to Hip Hop Nation all the time on <laughs> XM, and you know, within two minutes, I've heard every cuss word and every oh misogynistic oh um, and materialism worship and, and all this. And I'm like, 
how can this be helping? I, I'm at a loss, uh, honestly, on that one. And I, I want to ask you, like, is this something new? Like, so I don't remember hearing that when I was younger. Um, but man, you turn on the radio now and it's like, no, immediately shut that off. Like, what are we listening to? Um, and so I don't I don't know, like, what's going on. I, I really don't don't have a good response because I, I, I agree with you. Like, there have been times I'm just at a complete loss for words. Like, oh, my goodness, what are you all listening to? Like, I don't think I listened to this when I was younger. Well, I, you know, I went, you know, when I was in college, you know, hip hop to me meant public enemy, De La Soul, KRS-One, you know, all these people with a positive message or at least a, a social movement, um, political involvement message. And now it's just materialism. I mean, just yeah. unbridled, secure the bag, you know, secure the bag, secure right. the bag no matter what you got to do and, yeah. and, you know, drive the G wagon or, you know, the, the, the Rari or whatever it is, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, that's the messaging. And I just don't, you know, I, I worry about our youth in, in yes. that. and I just wish that there was a counter to, and I guess there is probably a counter to it is probably not as popular. And I think you're, you're a counter to it because you're propping up the, 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 positive messages of what a healthy uh, relationship looks like, what, what successful couples have done and how healthy that is for, for, you know, any community and, and especially the black community. Yeah. I, I, one thing I, I really have to do a better job with is getting that into the hands of the younger generation, right? Oftentimes as researchers, we write for our colleagues. So we're writing for people that's going to read research. And so um, that's something that I'm really aiming to do a better job at is, is get this in front of those that actually need it and are going to read it. Because as you share, like, you know, um, the younger generation they're listening to things. I know my daughter who is, um, she's only nine. Every car we see that looks like a sports car, she says, dad, that's a Lambo. <laughs> that is, that is not a Lambo. Um, but that comes from, you know, and she just watches like families on YouTube and, and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, my aunt came in town and she said, Oh, auntie, you got on Balenciaga's you rich, rich. I'm like, what, what are you, <laughs> what have you been listening to? Um, but that's what she's getting. I asked her recently, I said, baby, how much do Balenciaga's cost? And she says, oh, you know, they're a couple million. <laughs> so we don't even have it. You don't even have an understanding of, you know, what mm -hmm. this is. You just hear in song and see on TV that this is what luxury looks like. And so I think, you know, kind of bringing that back to my research, like you, as researchers, we all have to do a better job of informing the community with our research mm -hmm. and understanding that it's bigger than just publishing a paper. It's bigger than just receiving a grant. Like the work is really done by addressing the issues within the communities that we live and those that we aim to help. Yeah. And I think that, you know, your work, um, you know, in storytelling, you know, that's, that's how science is translated to us masses through translational science, uh, through storytelling, to yeah. make it accessible so that the layperson can understand and not not just look at graphs and statistics and and and, and research speak, so to speak, um, but but to translate into that into those stories that we can. And, and today's stories are portrayed in the media through social media, through through music, and I just don't know that we have. You know the positive messages being being this positive stories being told as much. I mean, we had the Huxtables in the mm -hmm. in the in the the eighties, I guess. I mean, who's who's the modern day Huxtable? <laughs> Ooh, uh, that's a great question. I, I honestly not sure. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at social media now, you'll see that the young people are calling everything goals, right? Oh, that that's goals. You know, they see uh, a couple that only has money. We have no idea. You know. How happy they are whether they have a family so they, oh that's goals a couple um, goals yeah. couple goals so the go, the couple goals you know um there they see a couple laying out on the beach oh that's goals um uh -huh. and again like you know it's it's just giving social media is giving us so much access to so much that you know many times i feel like 
we've lost the idea of what true couple goals are or or should be in. And that's where I really mm-hmm. want to use my research to say, hey, couple goals is if you get married, staying married mm-hmm. for your, you know, the duration of your life. And, and this is how you do that. This yeah, is man- what has worked for these couples. Yeah. Managing money, yep. shared roles, <laughs> shared yeah. responsibilities, all those things. Those are the yes. real goes yeah i mean social media gives us that that highlights of of everyone's life and and that's a, such a small percentage of of the whole picture so it is it is distorted in that way um so what what tell tell me about the you know what do you teach in your lectures um to to the students that you have and and how do you weave um these the the strength focus perspective in in those lessons okay um well one class I'm teaching right now is is research, which is is a graduate level course, but that's really just informing students on how to do research and you know how to remain ethical in your research. Um, another course I'm teaching is health in the older adult, um, and one thing that I really kind of focus on in that course is understanding the different different social determinants of health. So you know we have these health outcomes, we have these health disparities, so on and so forth, but what kind of contributes to these to these different things and even thinking outside of the box as far as what could be a social determinant of health i know we brought up you know politics a bit earlier and that's one of the things that i've kind of been exploring and thinking about is you know given the political climate over the last several years I wonder how that is contribute to health outcomes because a lot of people bought very heavily in, into what was going on politically. Um, there were there was an insurrection of, of sorts, um, and so all of these different things that were going on, we have to think about. Okay, how has this contributed to health outcomes? And so, in my uh, health of the older adult course, it's really kind of thinking through those things and having those conversations about, you know, social determinants of health, um, issues around minority health and things of that nature that that deserve more research and deserve more attention. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, that that got me thinking about, you know, the role of uh, today's social media world and just how toxic a lot of that is. And, you know, for, you know, like I said earlier, you're swelling your amygdala to the point where you don't you don't know what's what really needs to be focused on for managing uh, your life in the real world and you've got all this activation from this feed that's happening so you know i think we can look to older couples and older people in general and 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 maybe reconnect with you know the things that are keeping them healthy today and see you know what the variables are that's making us so not healthy in a, in a way and and i think that that's that's so important that we have people like you that are focused on you know really interested in in aging and and looking at how are you been married 60 years and you're in your 80s or 90s and you're still healthy and happy and you're doing yes. these things and your quality of life is amazing that's what we should be like striving to to look for in research so i really appreciate that that you're into that <laughs> yeah, yeah it's important because we're we're living longer but we're getting sicker earlier um and so we're seeing people now more often in their 20s, 30s, 40s that are dealing with high blood pressure, diabetes, experiencing stroke at younger ages. So, you know, a lot of times we we are excited about the life expectancy and the changes, the positive changes in life expectancy, but we're living longer with these different diseases. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot that is uh, impacting younger adults and contributing to these poor health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how much do you think of that as like, okay, the, the changes in our food is way more processed. We could talk about food deserts and access to healthy foods. And also, like, you know, I keep going back to, you know, the, the toxicity of politics and social media and, and the, the lack of real uh, physical uh, physical threats. Um, as far as like, there's no, not that many animals that want to eat us anymore, right. <laughs> you know, things like that. So we're, we're making up these, you know, the, the, these monsters from whether it's Trump tweeting or, you know, or, or, you know, 
this this social issue that you know someone said something that just made me crazy you know it's like you know if you just shut all that off look around your environment yeah. what's what what really is causing your health to decline and i think i think that's worth looking into and, and asking and and i think you know what do you find so back to the diet thing you know the the healthy older couples that you see, I mean, they, they probably grew up on very basic and, and, and you know, closer from the, the earth to the table kind yes. of living. And, and is do you find some, are there some correlations between, you know, healthy or older people and their, and their diets, ha, dietary habits through time and then today's younger generations? Um, I'm honestly not really sure. I haven't really looked much at, at diet. I, I do think as you share, you know, um, younger generations now, there's a lot more of the, the fast food, a lot more of the, you know, grab something quick type deal. Um, and then we're still faced with, you know, as you referenced these food deserts, which are even in large metropolitan cities, um, whether it's Winston-Salem or, or Atlanta. Um, and so I think that all of that kind of contributes, but as far as a comparison, I can't really, I can't really speak on it. I don't, I don't feel mm -hmm. qualified to, to really kind of, um, speak on any differences that may be present there because I just, mm -hmm. I just don't know. I didn't really dive into that. Oh, in the stories that the older couples talk about, did they, I mean, did they have? Was it tradition to have family meals, you know, um, pretty consistently? Yeah. I mean, I think I think I'm kind of getting at some of that too. Is the tradition of of what family means? Yes. So so much more much more uh, communal eating, but we we also see that that aligns closely with uh, things such as religiosity, mm -hmm. um, and so people that are more religiously involved tend to fellowship a bit more around food um for african americans that's not always a positive thing because we see uh such as those that identify as baptists have a higher rate of obesity and it may be in part a function of this kind of communal eating fellowship every time we get together we're gonna eat type deal um but i i do agree that you know um that there needs to be uh, a bit more of these kind of family tradition. And I'm a part of a bigger research project. It's called the American Families of Faith Project. Um, and so it, it looks at over 200 families from diverse faith backgrounds and explores what contributes to strong families just in general. And one of the things that's really kind of present in the bigger data set is that tradition that we sit down for dinner. You don't You don't just grab your food and go to your room we sit down for dinner. Our family has traditions. Um, our families are grounded in these traditions, um, whether it be around food or simply spending time together. And I think that's important for family functioning. I think that's important for, you know, family stability is that we do kind of maintain those habits that, that keep the family together. I mean, the old saying is, it's kind of the family that prays together stays together. But, um, the part of that that I think we don't necessarily focus on as much is the together piece. Mm -hmm. And okay, it's great praying together, but I also believe that, you know, the family that dines together has a stronger ability to stay together. The family that copes together has a strong ability to stay together. And so I think that, you know, just kind of having those traditions and recognizing that doing things together and bringing the family together is important for stability. Well, I think you know, there's a there's a lot there that I, you know, I love about that, and in the, the the United Plates of America, that's that's <laughs> where I think the the answer to all this is, because food is the great the great uh, you know connector. You know, we all have to eat, and we all love to share and and talk about food, but also sitting around the table, especially as a family, um, you know, it's where you learn the rules of discourse. You know, you learn the, the 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 goals of communication and telling stories and all those things that that seem to have been lost or at least not not as revered as it once was. And and I think just by getting food through a window and eating in a car and yeah. you know, all the distractions of, of 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 daily life and the and the tyranny of the daily routines and things like that, we lose that 
in that. And I just think that that's so important. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and we've, we do know from our culinary medicine uh, program and our Brenner Fit programs and things like that, which stands for families in training to prevent childhood obesity, you know, that just sitting down together for one meal a day has huge outcome health, uh, you know, healthier outcome relevance than not doing that. And, and having conversations and having a topic to talk about. You're eating slower. You know, you're getting full. You're getting satiated yes. you know, you know, properly instead of just woofing down as much as the bag holds kind of thing. So, yeah. you know, I, I go back to, you know, the mealtime, man. It's everything. <laughs> yes. Yeah, put the phones down. <laughs> yeah, phones down, turn media off, and, <laughs> you know, talk about what's important to, to those you love. Well, um. Man, uh, what 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 are you most hopeful for? What what gives you like, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? And you're just like super psyched to go tackle. Oh, wow, that's a great question. Oh wow, um, man, you're making me think. <laughs> um, I don't know what 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 really drives me. Like I I just always professionally like there's just so much work to be done. And I think that, you know, that's really kind of driver is um, kind of informing my community, informing those that I engage with and and just kind of being a difference maker. Like, you know, I know it can be it can be tough to, to write the papers and the grants and all of that. But when you start to engage with the community and really make the difference and see the difference, I think that's where it really hits home for me um and that's what i really kind of push people to do um i mean i i'm certainly driven by engaging with my students or engaging with with young adults as well and, and on this notion of kind of temporary sacrifice like you know do what it is that you have to do now to get where it is that you want to go and realize that you have a support system like i'll i'll be anybody's biggest cheerleader like always um if you're doing something positive like i will support you wholeheartedly i'll be in your corner i'll call i'll check up i'll send texts like like just really being you know there for people is is really kind of the driver for me and and that's who i want to be i want my legacy to live long after i leave this earth um in the lives that i've touched and that, that's pretty much it well, I love that because, you you know, you're learning from the older couples, you're getting wisdom from their stories, you're teaching to the younger generation and, you know, and you're talking about love and, you know, and, and I just, you know, I loved your energy during your, your presentation of the week. And I just, I was like, I got to have him on the podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> so the opposite of that question, what keeps you up at night? What worries you? What keeps me up at night? Um, oh, wow. Um. Well, work definitely keeps me up at night. I, I don't, I don't Lots of work to be done. Like yeah, that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get much sleep. I, I tend to be uh, kind of a night writer. I, I work at night, um, and so once the house goes quiet, you know, oftentimes that's when I do the majority of my work. So that's definitely one thing that that keeps me up. Um, another thing that keeps me up is, you know kind of i think it's kind of a, a along those same lines is that i'm so driven to kind of make a difference and, and to be the difference is that sometimes it can be frustrating when you feel like you aren't making that difference or you aren't doing enough um, and that's something that my family always kind of stays in my ear about it's like hey it, it's okay to slow down it's okay to not do everything that you need to do tomorrow um because many times that can be the mindset that I adopt is there's always more to do. You know, I, 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 I rarely stop to celebrate because there's always more to do. Um, and so that's not necessarily a healthy response, not necessarily a good response. And so others around me will be celebrating me and I'll be like, man, I, I got to get back to work. Like there, there's more to do. I, I can't, I can't stop here. Um, so something that, you know, I recognize something I, I, I definitely need to work on. So what do you do for fun? Uh, for fun, sports for me is fun. Like, uh, I don't watch much television, but whenever there's 
pretty much any sports I'm I'm involved in. And my son's a sports fanatic. Um, my daughter loves sports. And so a lot of our family fellowship is around sports, whether it's NBA or softball or NFL or college football or whatever the case may be. Um, that's kind of my turn off moment. I get to turn off. I get to relax and just enjoy sports. Um, yeah, that's great. I mean, there's two things. I think the the the, the sharing meal time and sharing competition. You know, I love yes. it. You know, those are yes. two things where we can get rid of politics, get rid of all the noise of society, and and really just appreciate the the human form and the human achievement and things like that. Well, I love your strength focus perspective. I will put the link Thank to you. your profile and CV in the show notes. Um, you have a Twitter handle, Instagram, anything you want to propagate here? I do. My, my Twitter is skip underscore PhD. So that's my Twitter. Follow me there. I don't have a lot of Twitters. I don't, I don't tweet very often, but when there is some news to share, I do take to Twitter. So skip SKIP underscore PhD. Well, Antonius Skipper, man, this has been wonderful. I'd love to do it again. Um, this, yes. I, I'm sure I'll think of a thousand questions after we <laughs> stop, but uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And good luck with changing the world. I think you're doing a great job. We're doing it together. I appreciate you having me.